Our Bible reading this evening is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, starting at verse 1, following Jesus' ministry in Galilee. When Jesus had finished saying all these in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him he said I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. 
Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Why did Jesus heal the centurion's servant? The elders of the Jews who approached Jesus on the centurion's behalf make a strong case for his meriting Jesus' intervention. The welfare of the servant doesn't really feature in their consideration. The main thing is this servant was precious to his master and his master was a very important man. He was a man worth helping. Though not a Jew himself, he's actually a foreign mercenary doing a tour of duty as a high-ranking officer in the army of King Antipas. Nevertheless, he is a man who's come to love the Jewish people among whom he's been stationed. And he's demonstrated his devotion and commitment to their welfare by meeting the cost of building the local synagogue. Knowing as you do just how much it costs to build a brand new place of worship, uh, you can imagine how grateful they were to have a man who met the entire cost single-handed. This was an extraordinary act of generosity on his part. I remember when I was in ministry in the Midlands, the church had a six-figure debt on the cost of a new building, and this was unexpectedly wiped out by a legacy from an old man who hadn't attended church since he was a teenager, but who left the church, the, his house to the church in his will. We were profoundly grateful to him for the unexpected act of generosity, though of course we couldn't pass our thanks on to him. So the Jews in Capernaum had every reason to be deeply grateful to the centurion, and when his servant fell seriously ill and his servant was precious to him, they felt the least they could do was put in a good word for him with Jesus. And when Jesus heard of the centurion's plight, he agreed to come. But why? Was it because he'd been persuaded that this Gentile merited his intervention because he'd been such a generous benefactor to the nation? Did Jesus think I'd better give something back? Doesn't sound a lot like Jesus, who generally speaking didn't seem to be unduly swayed by considerations of honour, prestige or wealth when it came to helping people. The Jewish elders certainly did a good job of trying to persuade Jesus that this centurion was worthy of his intervention, but I'm not sure that's why Jesus agreed to go with them. Actually, there's good reason to suppose that the centurion himself would have been deeply uncomfortable with the way in which the Jewish elders had bigged him up to Jesus. They'd done their best to paint him in the best possible light, saying how good and how generous he was and how much he deserved Jesus' help. But in the merit stakes, the centurion actually had quite a a different opinion of his own importance. Before Jesus even reaches the house, he sends a group of friends to Jesus to forestall him, saying, look, there's no need for you to come all this way. Actually, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not that important. I don't matter that much. I don't deserve Jesus to have Jesus Have you, Jesus, as my guest? He does not consider himself to be sufficiently important to merit Jesus coming all that way to help him. Maybe he was a bit anxious about how his request for help had been communicated and received. After all, if a man in his position asks for something, that is tantamount to giving an order, isn't it? You don't say no to a man in that position of authority and power, when he asks, you go and do it. And he didn't want to come across that way to Jesus. 
So whereas the Jewish elders have done their best to convince Jesus that this man was such a deserving cause, his request merited top priority because of who he was, the man himself sends a second delegation to Jesus to express exactly the opposite. I'm not worthy. I'm actually, I don't count for very much. Uh, Please don't even set foot in my house. I'm not good enough for that. So why does Jesus heal the servant? Is it because the Jews think the man is worthy or because the man himself thinks he's unworthy? Or perhaps it's neither of these factors. It is perhaps the man's faith. There's no denying that the centurion's faith impresses Jesus immensely. Nowhere in Israel have I found the kind of faith that this Gentile has is Jesus' surprised assessment. This man really believes. What called forth this commendation from Jesus? It was the way in which the centurion simply drew on his own experience as an army officer to interpret how authority worked. And he used this as a basis for his appeal to Jesus to heal his servant from a distance. Look, I am a man under authority, he says. I spend my life taking orders from senior officers. I don't make up my own mind on stuff. I'm told to do this, and I do it. And I do it because I have to obey orders. That's how life works for me. And the people under me, I see something that needs doing, and I tell them to do it, and they go and do it. Uh, I'm the kind of middleman. I'm told what to do. I get other people to make sure that it happens. With my servant, I tell him to do this or that, and because he is under my authority, he does as he is told. So actually, Jesus, with that understanding of how authority works, all you have to do is give the order, say the word, and it'll be done. One way or another, my servant will be healed. It's that simple, straightforward faith that blew Jesus away. I've never run across faith like this anywhere in Israel, he says. And then presumably, he does as he's been bidden. He does say the word. He does give the command for the centurion's servant to be healed. I say presumably because Luke doesn't actually tell us this. He simply jumps ahead and says that the centurion's friends return to his house to find the servant alive and well. So was it faith that made all the difference? Was it the capacity to believe that Jesus could perform such a miracle? When it comes to prayer, do we need to screw ourselves up and try and summon that kind of faith so that our prayers will be equally effective? But before we jump to that conclusion, we would do well to ponder the next miracle that Jesus performs. An even greater miracle than a healing from a distance. Jesus enters a town called Nain and he runs across a funeral procession. It is an exceedingly sorry and sad affair. The funeral is for a young man who's recently died. He's the only son of a poor widow. Everyone is is upset. And Jesus goes and touches the litter on which the corpse is being carried. And when the funeral bearers stand still, he addresses the dead man and says, Young man, talking to you. Up you get. And to everyone's amazement, that's precisely what happens. 
The dead man sits up, begins to talk, and Jesus restores him to his mother. Why did he do that? Was there any mighty prayer of faith? No. No one asks him to bring the young man back to life. No one in their wildest dreams imagined that Jesus was capable of doing such an amazing miracle. Was the young man of high social standing, a person on whom the welfare of the town depended? Had he done something amazing to merit such intervention to bring him back to life? No. He, he was just a young man who was the only son of a widow, and she had no great social standing in the community. In terms of status or social importance, there was nothing to suggest that she was a particularly deserving case, nor does she fling herself at Jesus' feet, declaring how unworthy she is of his attention. So there's no spoken prayer of faith. There's no indication that this man is a special case who's particularly important, or the mother went to great lengths to underline humility. The reason Jesus brought this young man back to life was because he saw the funeral procession and when he realised what had happened, his heart went out to this widow who'd lost her husband and her only son. And he had compassion on her. He felt for her. He grieved for her. He wanted to sort out her situation. His heart went out to her and all those who shared her grief and her devastation And he took the initiative in returning the son to his mother because he was moved to do so. It wasn't a matter of being swayed by fervent prayers or social status or displays of abject humility. The initiative, the motivation, the will, the power, all came from him. The compassion welled up in his heart. And he performs what was perhaps one of the greatest miracles of his ministry, because only two or three times did he bring someone back to to life from the dead, and he did it without anybody asking him to. He just did it because he had compassion. Quite simply, what we see here is Jesus unilaterally exercising his authority and deciding this is what he's going to do in this situation. And recognising that prompts us to take a look back at what happened when Jesus healed the centurion's servant. What was so special about the centurion's faith? It wasn't his humility in saying that he wasn't worthy to welcome Jesus into his home. What set his faith apart was simply the insight into the authority that Jesus had. How it worked and what it meant. Locked as the centurion was into a hierarchical organisation where unquestioning obedience was due to your superiors and expected from you by them, the centurion recognised that in terms of authority, Jesus was the top of the tree. Nobody bossed him around. If he gave the order, it was carried out. And his authority extended even into the realm of sickness and disease, realms where, humanly speaking, we have zero authority and jurisdiction. We've acquired a great deal of skill and insight and healing capability over the centuries, but saying a word has no effect on sickness or disease at all. 
that Jesus has authority in that area. So what was the centurion's faith really all about? Well, yes, he recognized that Jesus was able to heal his servant from a distance, but actually, why did he believe that? It's simply that he recognized who Jesus is. He realized that Jesus, Jesus is the one with the authority here. Jesus is the one who is in charge. Jesus is the one who, when he speaks, what he says happens. And so before we start to think about faith being believing about what Jesus can do, the first step, the first insight in faith is actually recognising who Jesus is. Because if you recognise who Jesus is, you realise what authority he has and what he can do. But you'll never believe that he can do stuff unless you recognise his identity. We've been running a, a discipleship course on Tuesday nights, Next Steps. It looks at uh, baptism, becoming a Christian and church membership. And we talked a bit about there about what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And we had a similar discussion at the worship group on Thursday as we prepared for these services. Recognising that to be a Lord in 21st century Britain is actually quite different from being a Lord, uh, the medieval Lord of a feudal estate, for example. So when we say Jesus is Lord, is it perhaps a bit anachronistic to use that term because our understanding of lordship is very different from what it would have been a few years ago in Britain and certainly different from what it would have been in first century uh, Judea. Does the word Lord today actually accurately convey the meaning of who Jesus is? Are we bogged down with a picture of all those peers in the House of Lords? So what about alternatives? King. We sing Jesus is king, we declare Jesus is king often enough, but the authority of a king is circumscribed or a queen is circumscribed in our own uh, land today. Boss, a bit mundane. Governor, equally so. But the word authority sums it up quite well. If we say Jesus is Lord, we mean Jesus is the one in authority. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who makes sure that things happen. He's the one who gets to decide what happens. And he's the one we submit to. He's the one we work for. He's the one we serve. So what was so special about the centurion's faith? It was just that as an officer in the army, he recognised and accepted that in this situation, Jesus had the authority. Jesus was the one in charge. Jesus was the one giving the orders. And therefore, by whatever means, what he commanded would be done. And maybe it was that recognition of Jesus' authority that led him to say say to his friends, go and tell him, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. He knew the chain of command in his army, so many men under him. His superior officer was a tribune. Above him was a legate who was a member of the Roman aristocracy. Above the legates, well, you 
above aristocracy you get to royalty. There's King Antipas, and above the local ruler is Caesar himself. But somehow he, he caught a glimpse of the reality that above all of these was the man he'd presumed to come and ask to heal his servant. And recognising the exalted nature of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, he suddenly thought, what have I done? What right have I got to ask him to come and do my bidding? He suddenly lost his nerve and asked Jesus not to come, despite his impeccable credentials. He knew he was not worthy. Yet nevertheless, if, if, you, just, if you just say the word, that's all it would take. My servant will be healed. And maybe that shows us what real faith is all about. It's not our capacity to believe that miracles can happen. Faith is recognising who Jesus is. The absolute Lord. The one who has complete authority in heaven and on earth. The one who gives the orders. The one who governs our lives. Who claims our allegiance. The one whose will we are called to put into practice. And that's why when you encounter Jesus as Lord, your response is not, how can I try and persuade him to do what I want? How can I get him on side to answer this particular prayer? How can I bring his power to bear on my situation in such a way that I get what I need? No. When you recognise that Jesus is Lord, you recognise that you have encountered the highest power there is. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so it's not a matter of saying, Jesus, come and do this for me, please. It's a matter of worship and humbling ourselves before him. And recognising that in Jesus, we encounter the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, the Saviour of the world. He lays claim to our lives. And our response is to say, Lord, here I am. It's not a matter of me getting you to do my bidding. What is your will for me? Let me serve you and acknowledge your claim upon my life.